Matthew chapter 4. It's the first book of the New Testament, page 683. We'll be looking at Matthew chapter 4. When I was in the 11th grade, my best friend was a girl that I sat next to in geometry class. And we were really close, and, and because figuring out geometric proofs was something that came easily to me, and it was something that mystified her, I became her geometry tutor. It wasn't that she wasn't bright. She was a, grade a, a straight-A student in the top five of her class, and she'd aced algebra, she'd aced precalculus, but somehow she just couldn't get geometry. It must be the other side of the brain or something. Well, because she was so used to doing well, well in school, the, the C's and D's that she was getting in geometry just devastated her. She dreaded every test. She, she felt stressed and anxious for days beforehand, and she'd study for hours, but it didn't seem to make a difference. Well, I did all I could do to help her. I explained the chapters. I coached her through the proofs. I stayed after school to help her study for the tests. If I could have, I would have taken the tests for her. Aren't there times when it would be oh so nice if someone else could take the test for us? Well, I have good news for us this morning. The story that we read in Matthew's gospel assures us that in the test that matters most, Jesus has already taken and aced the test for us. Today's story is the story of how immediately after Jesus' baptism, he was led by God's Spirit into the wilderness where he fasted for 40 days and nights and was tested and tempted by the devil. That Greek word peirazo can mean both test and tempt. Interpreter William Barclay reflects on the fact that Jesus was alone during this time. None of his disciples were with him. And so the only reason that we have this story and we know what happened in the desert is because Jesus himself chose to share it with us. Barclay comments, We must always approach this story with a unique and special reverence, for in it Jesus is laying bare his inmost heart and soul. He is telling men and women what he went through. It is the most sacred of all stories, for in it Jesus is saying to us that he can help others who are tempted, because he himself was tempted. He draws the veil from his own struggle to help us in our struggle. Wow. We go through life in a world that's far from perfect with our own fears and desires which are far from pure and holy very often. And we constantly face moral dilemmas and choices along the way and we struggle to do what's right. What a rich store of encouragement this story offers us. What a wealth of resources it supplies us with. This story is full of good news for us. Two Januarys ago, my friend and mentor, Daryl Johnson, preached on these wonderful 11 verses for four Sundays. And I've only got less than half an hour. So let's get busy working through this story and see what we can discover. The first encouragement for us in this story is that God, through his Holy Spirit, led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. Yes, that's actually good news. William Barclay explains, Now here is a great and uplifting truth. What we call temptation is not meant by God to make us sin. It is meant to enable us to conquer sin. 
It is not meant to make us bad. It is meant to make us good. It is not meant to weaken us. It is meant to make us emerge stronger and finer and purer from the ordeal. Temptation is not the penalty of being a man or woman. Temptation is the glory of being a man or woman. It is the test which comes to a man or woman whom God wishes to use. Isn't that good? Sure, the devil comes and tries to turn God's good plan to test us into a temptation to trip us up. But in the end, the devil is merely God's minion inadvertently furthering God's great purposes. So are you facing a struggle? Are you facing a time of testing or temptation? Are you in the wilderness? Take heart. God loves you and is doing something wonderful in you, just like he was doing in his son Jesus. But it's so hard, isn't it? We're so easily tripped up. We come from a long line of failures. Think about the background of this story. This story is full of echoes of Israel's time of testing in the wilderness in the Old Testament. God's people went through a sort of baptism at the Red Sea, and then they were led by God into the wilderness, not for 40 days, but for 40 years, and they were tested there. In Jesus' temptation, Jesus quotes Scripture three times, and, and each of those Scriptures recalls the time Israel was tested in the wilderness. And how did God's people do on the tests in the wilderness? They failed miserably, didn't they? they? They failed to trust God. They grumbled and complained. They rebelled and sought to go back to Egypt. That's our legacy as we face tests and temptations of our own. We come from a long line of failures. But now Jesus comes out of the water and he follows that old well-trod path back out into the wilderness he remains there 40 days. He hungers and he's tested and he's tempted just like God's people were, just like we are. Arthur pointed out so helpfully last week that in Jesus' baptism, Jesus identified with us. He identified with sinners. And in his temptation, Jesus identifies with us again. He faces the temptations we face. He, he takes the test that we take, and he succeeds where we fail. He aces the test for us. What good news. So when you're tempted, when you're struggling to trust God, you're struggling to obey, you're struggling to do what's right, let me give you an image that I want you to remember. It's the Monday after the big exam. It was a hard one, and you're sure you bombed it. The teacher, the professor, has already graded the tests over the weekend, and now he's going around handing them back. Your test hits your desk. You look at the cover sheet. There's your name, Friday's date, in your own handwriting, written with your lucky pen, which didn't seem to do you any good. You're afraid to look inside, but you steal yourself, and you cautiously flip your test open. Wait, that's strange. This isn't your handwriting inside. You read a line or two, these aren't your answers. You're not that good. 
scattered here and there in the teacher's red ink are comments like, excellent, well done, exactly. You flip to the second page and to the third, it's more of the same. You flip through the fifth, the seventh, to the last page, A+, plus, excellent work, it says in the teacher's red ink. Jesus has taken the test for you, and he's aced it. Hallelujah. If we are followers of Jesus, then it's okay if we botch up our temptations. God isn't mad. God isn't going to flunk us or put the dunce cap on us and punish us because Jesus has already taken the test for us and in God's grade book, we already have an A+. That's the gospel. But there's even more good news. Because if I had been able to take my friend's geometry tests for her, she would have gotten an A in the course, but she wouldn't have learned any geometry. Now, arguably, she can get through life okay without being able to prove that triangle A is congruent to triangle B. But we will not get through life very well if we don't actually learn the spiritual material that God tests us on. If we never learn to hold our temper when our loved ones make us angry. If we never learn how to control our desires, our desire for sex, our desire for revenge, our desire for stuff we don't really need, our desire for attention or, or validation from other people. If we never really learn how to trust and to find peace in God when times get tough, then we'll continue to experience the ache and the brokenness of this present life and, and we'll be barely fitted for the life to come. So here's where the more good news comes in. Not only did Jesus take the test for us to get us that A plus in God's grade book, but he took it to teach us, to, to show us how to pass the test ourselves. And because we already know that we've aced the course, we're freed up to relax and to try and to fail and to try again until we get it right. So what can Jesus teach us through his example about how to take the test? Well, let me make four general observations about Jesus' temptations, and then we'll look at the specific three temptations themselves. The first observation is that Jesus' temptation flows directly out of his baptism. At his baptism, the Spirit comes upon Jesus, and then that Spirit immediately leads Jesus out into the wilderness to be tested. At his baptism, the Father speaks, assuring Jesus that he's God's own Son. And then, out in the wilderness, Satan needles away at the Father's words, if you are the Son of God. So what do we learn from this? Well, we learn that those of us who are baptized, those of us who've given our lives to Christ, can expect to be tested. If you're not experiencing temptation in your Christian life, you probably need to take your spiritual pulse and see if you're alive at all. We also learn that after God calls us to do some work for him, and we step into that calling, we can expect to be tested. Commentator Craig Keener puts it well, Jesus had to be tested 
and to overcome the tester before he could do anything else. Too many people try to serve the Lord without first submitting to the internal work that God wants to do in them. The wilderness is not productive. It's not glamorous. It's not satisfying or fulfilling. But it's altogether necessary for for us to be shaped into people whom God can use. If God's own son had to be tested in order to be prepared for his calling, how much more do we? We learn finally that that we can expect to be tested, tempted, after we have a great spiritual mountaintop experience like Jesus did there at the Jordan River. I've experienced this myself, especially after a sermon that goes really well. God was really present. He, he visibly moved people. People's lives and hearts are being changed. Wow, I'm on a high. And as I head home afterwards, I also realize I'm tired and, I, and I'm really hungry. And, and so I get home and I walk through the front door and I'm ready to bask in the glory, preferably on the couch with some hot lunch. And two children are screaming. They've got every toy in the, the, the house strewn all over the place. And Anne hands me the baby and she gives me that look which says, if I don't get out of here right now and have an hour to myself in the coffee shop, we're all going to be sorry. <laughs> And she adds, can I make my own lunch and clean up the house while she's gone? <laughs> now, I know a lot, this has happened to a lot of you. <laughs> How do I respond to that? I'm being tested. I'm being tempted. Because you see, the real spiritual victory isn't being able to preach a great sermon that moves hundreds or thousands. It's to then be able to go home and to die to myself and to be a servant and not to get annoyed with others who are treading on my needs. I see some of the wives nodding up there. (laughs) The second observation. Every commentator that I've read on this passage believes that Jesus' struggle with the devil was wholly internal. In other words, if we'd been watching the temptation on TV, we wouldn't have actually seen anyone in the picture but Jesus struggling away by himself. Now, I used to picture the temptation story as this dark, sinister figure kind of sidling up to Jesus and hissing his wicked uh, suggestions in Jesus' ear. And Jesus, like the Teflon man, just says, no way, Satan, that's stupid. Uh, Get out of here. But now I realize that there's two problems with that picture. The first is that Satan is too smart to approach us in such an obvious way. Rather, Satan likes to subtly plant ideas and and images in our head, ideas which on the surface seem like good ideas. Satan is the master of deception. He works with our thoughts and with our imaginations, thoughts which are, are nearly true but not quite true. He's trying to shape our view of reality. He's trying to get us off track. Boy, have you heard that voice? I've heard that voice. The second problem with my old view of Jesus' temptation is that in it, Jesus is hardly really being tempted if he's the Teflon man. 
And yet the book of Hebrews tells us we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way. Let me ask you a question. If I have two trees in my backyard and a hurricane comes through, and the fierce winds come up and they whip those trees, and within five minutes the first one comes crashing down. But the second one stands, and and it stands all through the night, and it stands all through the next day of that storm. It writhes, it bends in the fierce winds, but it stands. By the end of that storm, which of those two trees faced the greater struggle? The one which stood. That's Jesus. In the wilderness and throughout his earthly life, Jesus faced greater testing, greater temptation than than you and I will ever face. Exactly because Jesus hung in there and kept resisting long after the rest of us have given up. Jesus understands what it's like to be tempted. He can fully sympathize with us. This leads to a third observation, and that is that Jesus overcomes his temptations by the Holy Spirit and by the Word of God. The Spirit is upon Jesus, and Jesus is following his lead as he goes into the wilderness. That's why he's in, out there in the first place, right? And each time Satan tempts Jesus by planting a not-quite-right thought in Jesus' head, Jesus responds with words of Scripture. That's why it's so important to know Scripture. Now, you may have heard the analogy of how they teach clerks to spot counterfeit bills. Not by having them examine and study counterfeits, but by having them repeatedly study real bills so that the truth is clearly and and sharply in focus so that we can spot the counterfeit masquerading as the truth when it comes along. And boy, I know to spot those subtle counterfeit ideas, I've got to stay submitted and attuned to the Holy Spirit. And I've got to stay steeped in God's word. I've got to know it well because Satan even knows how to quote scripture. He quotes scripture to Jesus, doesn't he? Out of context. But it's subtle. We've got to know it well. The fourth general observation about Jesus' temptation, and that is that Satan isn't trying to get Jesus to doubt that Jesus is the Son of God. Rather, he's trying to get Jesus to use his sonship in inappropriate ways. Satan isn't really saying, if you are the Son of God, do this, as much as he's saying, since you are the Son of God, do this. And since we who follow Jesus are now sons and daughters of God, Satan will press his attack against our relationship with the Father as well. We'll see this now as we move into the actual temptations. The first one. Jesus is God's own son. He's sent by God into the world to identify with God's people, to establish God's kingdom, God's rule over the nations. At his baptism, Jesus stepped into this calling. He's been filled with God's spirit and he's following the spirit's lead. And where has it gotten him? Here he is out in this desert, hungry, thirsty. 
All around him are scattered nothing but dust and stones. Those who've been to the wilderness near the Jordan tell us that it's strewn with small round rocks that are just about the size and shape of a loaf of bread. From a distance, those rocks look like bread. And Jesus is famished. And he finds himself thinking, I'm the son of God. Why not just use my power to turn these stones into bread? Now, we don't know how long Jesus struggled with this temptation which Satan had slipped into his mind. But in the end, the spirit led Jesus to a scripture that he'd memorized, which helped him to spot the counterfeit. People do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. This verse comes from Israel's experience in the wilderness years before when God had had tried to teach them that if they'd stop grumbling and demanding bread, and if they just trust their God, that God would have spoken. He would have said the word, and he would have given them all that they need. People live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's how a true son of God, a true child of God acts. He, she waits for God, trusts God, doesn't take matters into his or her own hands. In the words of, words of Daryl Johnson, Jesus will trust his father's care, even if it means more days without bread. The temptation Jesus faces here is the temptation to trust in our own gifts, our own strengths, our own abilities, our own pocketbooks and resources to meet our own needs now instead of trusting God. I think I face this temptation just about every day. It comes in so many forms. God helps those who help themselves. Go for it. You deserve it. It's your right. Grab all you can. Let me give you just one example from my own life. When we left our former church in Canada and we moved in with my mom as we were figuring out what to do next, even though we had plenty of savings, my provider instinct was beginning to kick in. I wasn't providing for my family and no income was coming in. I needed to get a job. Well, I quickly got a job doing carpentry work and it just about paid the few bills that we had. And so I spent long hours every day going or giving the best of my energy to carpentry. And that wasn't wrong in itself. There's nothing wrong with bread. We need bread. But I'm not sure I was really fully trusting in my Heavenly Father's care in that situation or, or waiting on how he wanted to provide for us. And I wonder what blessings and surprises we missed out on as a result. And I'm not talking about checks miraculously appearing in the mail. A couple actually did. But what I'm talking about is, is the character and the patience and, and the gratitude and the sure, confident trust that, that I might have developed if I'd lived day by day trusting my Heavenly Father and every word that came from His mouth. If Jesus is going to fulfill His mission, then he's going to have to trust his father completely. And the same is true for you and me. The second temptation. 
Satan takes Jesus to the holy city, Jerusalem, to a high point of the temple. Now, did they literally go there or did this happen in Jesus' mind's eye? I, I don't know. But a scripture came to Jesus' mind there atop the temple. God will command his angels concerning you. They will lift you up in their hands so you don't dash your foot against a stone. And since Jesus is the son of God, he's tempted to jump. Now, what's going on here? Some interpreters say he's tempted to make a grand spectacle which will cause people to flock to him. Others suggest that he's tempted to, to force God to come to his aid. After all, he's, he's in the desert, he's starving, Satan is harassing him. Where is God's help? If he goes to God's house and he jumps, God will have to show up and help him out. After all, God wouldn't let his son die. Well, with whichever interpretation you like, the point is the same, and that is that Jesus is tempted to force God's hand. And the, if the first temptation was about using our gifts and our strengths to take care of ourselves, then the second temptation is about forcing God to take care of us according to our agenda. But another scripture that Jesus has memorized comes to his mind. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Trust that he'll keep his promises, but don't force him to do it on your terms. Now, this is a very religion, religious temptation. You'll notice it happens in the holy city, at the holy temple. Satan even quotes a Bible verse in the process. I had a housemate once who felt that God was calling him to pray more. And so he quit his job so that he had more time to pray. And when his money ran out, he expected me to feed him. He wasn't only forcing God's hand, he was forcing mine. By all means, we should live by faith in what God is calling us to do, but we have to patiently wait for God's direction and for God's care. We can't jump ahead of God and expect God to catch us when we fall. But I don't think most of us are, or I'm sorry, I think most of us are more likely to force God's hand another way. We're afraid to jump because the truth is we don't trust God as much as we should. So what we do instead, instead of doing something reckless, is we sit still. It goes like this. All right, God, you want me to reconcile with that person? I trust you to help me. So I'll sit here in my living room. I'll be in my easy chair trusting you and just bring that person through the door to apologize to me, and then I'll forgive them. Jesus says, don't put the Lord your God to the test. Trust him. Follow his lead. Get moving and obey him. Don't expect God to jump when you say jump. The third and last temptation. Now Satan takes Jesus to a very tall mountain from which he can see all the kingdoms of the earth. There's no actual mountain with that kind of view. So perhaps again Jesus sees it in his mind's eye. We don't know for sure. As he sits there in the desert, maybe he's pondering the, the, the kingdoms that God has promised him that he's to inherit and, and no doubt pondering the price that he'll have to pay to inherit them. But there's another way. There's a simpler way. Satan offers it. 
Just bow down and worship me. And I will give you all of it now. Pain free. No suffering. No cross. Instant gratification. Imagine if Jesus had given in to this temptation. The world would have a Satan worshiper for our king. And what hope of salvation would be left for the world? This is the temptation to compromise. It's the temptation to take the easier way, to let the ends justify the means, to take a shortcut. And we fall for this all the time. It's the lie that we can have an abundant life, we can have a better world apart from the cross, apart from serving, apart from self-denial, apart from real sacrificial unconditional love. So we're pulled toward that lie that, that if we can just get this political party or that political ideology into power, everything will be all right. If we just weren't married to him or to her anymore, things would be better. If we just had this or that sexual encounter or romantic encounter, we would feel fulfilled if we just had the money for this or that, we would be happy. We wouldn't worry anymore. When all the while Jesus has told us and has showed us that the way to true life and the way to a better world is through dying to ourselves, through serving, through sacrificing, through loving others unconditionally. The one who finds their life will lose it. But the one who loses it will find it. Jesus promises us. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Well, what a gift the story is. In it, Jesus removes the veil of his own struggle to help us in our struggle. First, he takes the test for us so that we have already got an A-plus in God's grade book. Second, he teaches us how to take the test, how to let the Spirit and, and the Scriptures lead us into deeper trust in our Father so that we can spot the counterfeit lies which point us in a different direction. Let's go out there and make Jesus proud. Let's pray. Jesus, what holy ground we're standing on when you open your inmost mind and heart to us and show us what you struggled with and what you went through. Thank you, and we just praise you for being strong, for withstanding the fiercest of Satan's hurricane winds that came upon you buffeting you to cave. And thank you for showing us how to stand too. Thank you for covering us in your grace and, and letting us relax so we can put aside our anxiety and we can look for your help. We can see your smile even in the midst of the temptations we're facing. And we can struggle without fear of failure. 
We can get up. We can try and try again. Yet Jesus, often we don't take any of this nearly seriously enough. We're, we're asleep. We're oblivious to how we're getting tempted. We're getting fooled so often. I pray that you'd open us, our eyes up to learn from you and to walk with you. So as you continue your work of inheriting all the nations through a cross, I pray that we would walk in your steps, that we would take up that cross, that we would love, and that we would participate in what you're doing the way you taught us to do it. Amen. I think the challenge for some of us, maybe it's to come this week and to spend an hour each night focusing, praying, tuning in to spiritual realities in a way that maybe we haven't been lately. For others of us, maybe it's to get busy memorizing Scripture so that it's available when we're tempted in order that we can notice the counterfeit. This passage would be a great place to start. So take that the way God leads you. Thank you.